Part two of Clarimonde. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joy Chan. Clarimonde by Théophile Gautier. Translated by Lafcadio Hearn. Part two. I could no longer maintain my constrained attitude of prayer. The air of the alcove intoxicated me. That febrile perfume of half-faded roses penetrated my very brain, and I commenced to pace restlessly up and down the chamber, pausing at each turn before the bier to contemplate the graceful corpse lying beneath the transparency of its shroud. Wild fancies came thronging to my brain. I thought to myself that she might not, perhaps, be really dead, that she might only have feigned death for the purpose of bringing me to her castle, and then declaring her love. At one time I even thought I saw her foot move under the whiteness of the coverings, and slightly disarrange the long, straight folds of the winding sheet. And then I asked myself, Is this indeed Clarimonde? What proof have I that it is she? Might not that black page have passed into the service of some other lady? Surely I must be going mad to torture and afflict myself thus. But my heart answered with a fierce throbbing, It is she, it is she indeed. I approached the bed again, and fixed my eyes with redoubled attention upon the object of my incertitude. Ah, must I confess it? That exquisite perfection of bodily form, although purified and made sacred by the shadow of death, affected me more voluptuously than it should have done, and that repose so closely resembled slumber that one might well have forsaken it for such. I forgot that I had come there to perform a funeral ceremony. I fancied myself a young bridegroom entering the chamber of the bride, who all modestly hides her fair face, and through coyness seeks to keep herself wholly veiled. Heartbroken with grief, yet wild with hope, shuddering at once with fear and pleasure, I bent over her and grasped the corner of the sheet. I lifted it back, holding my breath all the while through fear of waking her. My arteries throbbed with such violence that I felt them hiss through my temples, and the sweat poured from my forehead in streams, as though I had lifted a mighty slab of marble. There, indeed, lay Clarimonde, even as I had seen her at the church on the day of my ordination. She was not less charming than then. With her, death seemed but a last coquetry. The pallor of her cheeks, the less brilliant carnation of her lips, her long eyelashes lowered, and relieving their dark fringe against that white skin lent her an unspeakably seductive aspect of melancholy chastity and mental suffering. Her long, loose hair, still intertwined with some little blue flowers, made a shining pillow for her head, and veiled the nudity of her shoulders with its thick ringlets. Her beautiful hands, purer, more diaphanous than the host, were crossed on her bosom in an attitude of pious rest and silent prayer, which served to counteract all that might have proven otherwise too alluring, even after death, in the exquisite roundness and ivory polish of her bare arms, from which the pearl bracelets had not yet been removed. I remained long in mute contemplation, and the more I gazed, the less could I persuade myself that life had really abandoned that beautiful body for ever. I do not know whether it was an illusion or a reflection of the lamplight, but it seemed to me that the blood was again commencing to circulate under that lifeless pallor although she remained all motionless. I laid my hand lightly on her arm. It was cold, 
but not colder than her hand on the day when it touched mine at the portals of the church. I resumed my position, bending my face above her, and bathing her cheek with the warm dew of my tears. Ah, what bitter feelings of despair and helplessness, what agonies unutterable did I endure in that long watch! Vainly did I wish that I could have gathered all my life into one mass that I might give it all to her, and breathe into her chill remains the flame which devoured me. The night advanced, and feeling the moment of eternal separation approach, I could not deny myself the last sad sweet pleasure of imprinting a kiss upon the dead lips of her who had been my only love. O oh, miracle! A faint breath mingled itself with my breath, and the mouth of Clarimonde responded to the passionate pressure of mine. Her eyes unclosed, and lighted up with something of their former brilliancy. She uttered a long sigh, and uncrossing her arms, passed them around my neck with a look of ineffable delight. Ah, oh, it is thou, Romald! She murmured in a voice languishingly sweet, as the last vibrations of a harp. What ailed thee, dearest? I waited so long for thee that I am dead. But we are now betrothed. I can see thee and visit thee. Adieu, Romald, adieu. I love thee. That is all I wished to tell thee. And I give thee back the life which thy kiss for a moment recalled. We shall soon meet again. Her head fell back but her arms yet encircled me, as though to retain me still. A furious whirlwind suddenly burst in the window, and entered the chamber. The last remaining leaf of the white rose for a moment palpitated at the extremity of the stalk, like a butterfly's wing. Then it detached itself and flew forth through the open casement, bearing with it the soul of Clarimonde. The lamp was extinguished, and I fell insensible upon the bosom of the beautiful dead. When I came to myself again, I was lying on the bed in my little room at the presbytery, and the old dog of the former curé was licking my hand, which had been hanging down outside of the covers. Barbara, all trembling with age and anxiety, was busying herself about the room, opening and shutting drawers, and emptying powders into glasses. On seeing me open my eyes, the old woman uttered a cry of joy. The dog yelped and wagged his tail but I was still so weak that I could not speak a single word or make the slightest motion. Afterward I learned that I had lain thus for three days, giving no evidence of life beyond the faintest respiration. Those three days do not reckon in my life, nor could I ever imagine whither my spirit had departed during those three days. I have no recollection of aught relating to them. Barbara told me that the same coppery-complexioned man who came to seek me on the night of my departure from the presbytery had brought me back the next morning in a close litter, and departed immediately afterward. When I became able to collect my scattered thoughts, I reviewed within my mind all the circumstances of that fateful night. At first I thought I had been the victim of some magical illusion, but ere long the recollection of other circumstances, real and palpable in themselves, came to forbid that supposition. I could not believe that I had been dreaming, since Barbara as well as myself had seen the strange man with his two black horses, and described with exactness every detail of his figure and apparel. Nevertheless it appeared that none knew of any castle in the neighbourhood answering to the description of that in which I had again found Clarimonde. One morning I found the Abbe Serapion in my room. Barbara had advised him that I was ill, 
and he had come with all speed to see me. Although this haste on his part testified to an affectionate interest in me, yet his visit did not cause me the pleasure which it should have done. The Abbe Serapion had something penetrating and inquisitorial in his gaze, which made me feel very ill at ease. His presence filled me with embarrassment and a sense of guilt. At the first glance he divined my interior trouble, and I hated him for his clairvoyance. While he inquired after my health in hypocritically honeyed accents, he constantly kept his two great yellow lion eyes fixed upon me, and plunged his look into my soul like a sounding lead. Then he asked me how I directed my parish, if I was happy in it, how I passed the leisure hours allowed me in the intervals of pastoral duty, whether I had become acquainted with many of the inhabitants of the place, what was my favourite reading, and a thousand other such questions. I answered these inquiries as briefly as possible, and he, without ever waiting for my answers, passed rapidly from one subject of query to another. That conversation had evidently no connection with what he actually wished to say. At last, without any premonition, but as though repeating a piece of news which he had recalled on the instant, and feared might otherwise be forgotten subsequently, he suddenly said in a clear, vibrant voice, which rang in my ears like the trumpets of the last judgment, the great courtesan Clarimond died a few days ago, at the close of an orgy which lasted eight days and eight nights. It was something infernally splendid. The abominations of the banquets of Belshazzar and Cleopatra were re-enacted there. Good God, what age are we living in? The guests were served by swarthy slaves who spoke an unknown tongue, and who seemed to me to be veritable demons. The livery of the very least among them would have served for the gala dress of an emperor. There have always been very strange stories told of this Clarimonde, and all her lovers came to a violent or miserable end. They used to say that she was a ghoul, a female vampire, but I believe she was none other than Beelzebub himself. He ceased to speak, and commenced to regard me more attentively than ever, as though to observe the effect of his words on me. I could not refrain from starting when I heard him utter the name of Clarimonde, and this news of her death, in addition to the pain it caused me by reason of its coincidence with the nocturnal scenes I had witnessed, filled me with an agony and terror which my face betrayed, despite my utmost endeavours to appear composed. Serapion fixed an anxious and severe look upon me, and then observed, "'My son, I must warn you that you are standing with foot raised upon the brink of an abyss. Take heed lest you fall therein. Satan's claws are long,' and tombs are not always true to their trust. The tombstone of Clarimonde should be sealed down with a triple seal, for, if report be true, it is not the first time she has died. May God watch over you, Ramold. And with these words the abbe walked slowly to the door. I did not see him again at that time, for he left for almost immediately. I became completely restored to health and resumed my accustomed duties. The memory of Clarimonde and the words of the old abbe were constantly in my mind. Nevertheless, no extraordinary event had occurred to verify the funereal predictions of Serapion, and I had commenced to believe that his fears and my own terrors were over-exaggerated, when one night I had a strange dream. I had hardly fallen asleep when I heard my bed-curtains drawn apart as their rings slided back upon the curtain-rod with a sharp sound. I rose up quickly upon my elbow, and beheld the shadow of a woman standing erect before me. 
I recognized Clarimonde immediately. She bore in her hand a little lamp, shaped like those which are placed in tombs, and its light lent her fingers a rosy transparency, which extended itself by lessening degrees even to the opaque and milky whiteness of her bare arm. Her only garment was the linen winding-sheet which had shrouded her when lying upon the bed of death. She sought to gather its folds over her bosom, as though ashamed of being so scantily clad, but her little hand was not equal to the task. She was so white that the colour of the drapery blended with that of her flesh under the pallid rays of the lamp. Enveloped with this subtle tissue which betrayed all the contour of her body, she seemed rather the marble statue of some fair, antique bather than a woman endowed with life. But dead or living, statue or woman, shadow or body, her beauty was still the same, only that the green light of her eyes was less brilliant, and her mouth, once so warmly crimson, was only tinted with a faint tender rosiness like that of her cheeks. The little blue flowers which I had noticed entwined in her hair were withered and dry, and had lost nearly all their leaves. But this did not prevent her from being charming, so charming that, notwithstanding the strange character of the adventure, and the unexplainable manner in which she had entered my room, I felt not even for a moment the least fear. She placed the lamp on the table, and seated herself at the foot of my bed. Then bending toward me, she said, in that voice at once silvery clear and yet velvety in its sweet softness, such as I never heard from any lips save hers. I have kept thee long in waiting, dear Romald, and it must have seemed to thee that I had forgotten thee. But I come from afar off, very far off, and from a land whence no other has ever yet returned. There is neither sun nor moon in that land whence I come. All is but space and shadow. There is neither road nor pathway, no earth for the foot, no air for the wing. And nevertheless behold me here, for love is stronger than death, and must conquer him in the end. Now oh, what sad faces and fearful things I have seen on my way hither! What difficulty my soul, returned to earth through the power of will alone, has had in finding its body and reinstating itself therein! What terrible efforts I had to make, ere I could lift the ponderous slab with which they had covered me! See, the palms of my poor hands are all bruised! Kiss them, sweet love, that they may be healed. She laid the cold palms of her hands upon my mouth, one after the other. I kissed them, indeed, many times, and she the while watched me with a smile of ineffable affection. I confessed to my shame that I had entirely forgotten the advice of the Abbe Serapion, and the sacred office wherewith I had been invested. I had fallen without resistance, and at the first assault... I had not even made the least effort to repel the tempter. The fresh coolness of Clarimonde's skin penetrated my own, and I felt voluptuous tremors pass over my whole body. Poor child! In spite of all I saw afterward, I can hardly yet believe she was a demon. At least she had no appearance of being such, and never did Satan so skilfully conceal his claws and horns. She had drawn her feet up beneath her, and squatted down on the edge of the couch in an attitude full of negligent coquetry. From time to time she passed a little hand through my hair and twisted it into curls, as though trying how a new style of wearing it would become my face. I abandoned myself to her hands with the most guilty pleasure, 
while she accompanied her gentle play with the prettiest prattle. The most remarkable fact was that I felt no astonishment whatever at so extraordinary an adventure, and as in dreams one finds no difficulty in accepting the most fantastic events as simple facts, so all these circumstances seemed to me perfectly natural in themselves. I loved thee long ere I saw thee, dear Romald, and sought thee everywhere. Thou wast my dream, and I first saw thee in the church at the fatal moment. I said at once, It is he! I gave thee a look into which I threw all the love I ever had, all the love I now have, all the love I shall ever have for thee, a look that would have damned a cardinal, or brought a king to his knees at my feet in view of all his court. Thou remainest unmoved, preferring thy God to me. Oh, how jealous I am of that God whom thou didst love, and still lovest more than me! Woe is me, unhappy one that I am! I can never have thy heart all to myself, I whom thou didst recall to life with a kiss, dead Clarimonde, whom for thy sake burst asunder the gates of the tomb, and comes to consecrate to thee a life which she has resumed only to make thee happy. All her words were accompanied with the most impassioned caresses, which bewildered my sense and my reason to such an extent that I did not fear to utter a frightful blasphemy for the sake of consoling her, and to declare that I loved her as much as God. Her eyes rekindled and shone like chrysoprases. In truth, in very truth, as much as God, she cried, flinging her beautiful arms around me. Since it is so, thou wilt come with me, thou wilt follow me whithersoever I desire. Thou wilt cast away thy ugly black habit, thou shalt be the proudest and most envied of cavaliers, thou shalt be my lover, to be the acknowledged lover of Clarimonde, who has refused even a pope. That will be something to feel proud of. Ah, oh, the fair, unspeakably happy existence, the beautiful golden life we shall live together. And when shall we depart, my fair sir? Tomorrow, tomorrow, I cried in my delirium. Tomorrow, then, so let it be, she answered. In the meanwhile I shall have opportunity to change my toilet, for this is a little too light and in no wise suited for a voyage. I must also forthwith notify all my friends who believe me dead, and mourn for me as deeply as they are capable of doing. The money, the dresses, the carriages, all will be ready. I shall call for thee at this same hour. Adieu, dear heart. And she lightly touched my forehead with her lips. The lamp went out, the curtains closed again, and all became dark. A leaden, dreamless sleep fell on me, and held me unconscious until the morning following. I awoke later than usual, and the recollection of this singular adventure troubled me during the whole day. I finally persuaded myself that it was a mere vapour of my heated imagination. Nevertheless, its sensations had been so vivid that it was difficult to persuade myself that they were not real, and it was not without some presentiment of what was going to happen that I got into bed at last, after having prayed God to drive far from me all thoughts of evil and to protect the chastity of my slumber. I soon fell into a deep sleep, and my dream was continued. The curtains again parted, and I beheld Clarimonde, not as on the former occasion, pale in her pale winding-sheet, with the violets of death upon her cheeks, but gay, sprightly, jaunty, in a superb travelling dress of green velvet, 
trimmed with gold lace, and looped up on either side to allow a glimpse of satin petticoat. Her blonde hair escaped in thick ringlets from beneath a broad black felt hat, decorated with white feathers, whimsically twisted into various shapes. In one hand she held a little riding-whip, terminated by a golden whistle. She tapped me lightly with it and exclaimed, "'Well, my fine sleeper, is this the way you make your preparations? I thought I would find you up and dressed. Arise quickly, we have no time to lose.' I leapt out of bed at once. "'Come, dress yourself and let us go,' she continued, pointing to a little package she had brought with her. "'The horses are becoming impatient of delay and champing their bits at the door. We ought to have been by this time at least ten leagues distant from here.' I dressed myself hurriedly, and she handed me the articles of apparel herself, one by one, bursting into laughter from time to time at my awkwardness, as she explained to me the use of a garment when I had made a mistake.' She hurriedly arranged my hair, and this done held up before me a little pocket-mirror of Venetian crystal, rimmed with silver filigree work, and playfully asked, "'How dost find thyself now? Wilt engage me for thy valet de chambre?' I was no longer the same person, and I could not even recognise myself. I resembled my former self no more than a finished statue resembles a block of stone. My old face seemed but a coarse daub of the one reflected in the mirror. I was handsome, and my vanity was sensibly tickled by the metamorphosis. That elegant apparel, that richly embroidered vest, had made of me a totally different personage, and I marvelled at the power of transformation owned by a few yards of cloth cut after a certain pattern. The spirit of my costume penetrated my very skin, and within ten minutes more I had become something of a coxcomb. In order to feel more at ease in my new attire, I took several turns up and down the room. Clarimonde watched me with an air of maternal pleasure, and appeared well satisfied with her work. "'Come, enough of this child's play. Let us start, Romal, dear. We have far to go, and we may not get there in time.' She took my hand and led me forth. All the doors opened before her at a touch, and we passed by the dog without awaking him. At the gate we found Margariton waiting, the same swarthy groom who had once before been my escort. He held the bridles of three horses, all black like those which bore us to the castle, one for me, one for him, one for Clarimonde. Those horses must have been Spanish gannets born of mares fecundated by a zephyr, for they were fleet as the wind itself, and the moon, which had just risen at our departure to light us on the way, rolled over the sky like a wheel detached from her own chariot. We beheld her on the right, leaping from tree to tree, and putting herself out of breath in the effort to keep up with us. Soon we came upon a level plain where, hard by a clump of trees, a carriage with four vigorous horses awaited us. We entered it, and the postilions urged their animals into a mad gallop. I had one arm around Clarimonde's waist, and one of her hands clasped in mine. Her head leaned upon my shoulder, and I felt her bosom, half bare, lightly pressing against my arm. I had never known such intense happiness. In that hour I had forgotten everything, and I no more remembered having been a priest than I remembered what I had been doing in my mother's womb. So great was the fascination which the evil spirit exerted upon me. From that night my nature seemed in some sort to have become halved, and there were two men within me, neither of whom knew the other. 
At one moment I believed myself a priest who dreamed nightly that he was a gentleman, at another that I was a gentleman who dreamed he was a priest. I could no longer distinguish the dream from the reality, nor could I discover where the reality began and where ended the dream. The exquisite young lord and libertine railed at the priest. The priest loathed the dissolute habits of the young lord. Two spirals entangled and confounded the one with the other. Yet never touching would afford a fair representation of this bicephalic life which I lived. Despite the strange character of my condition, I do not believe that I ever inclined, even for a moment, to madness. I always retained with extreme vividness all the perceptions of my two lives. Only there was one absurd fact which I could not explain to myself, namely, that the consciousness of the same individuality existed in two men so opposite in character. It was an anomaly for which I could not account, whether I believed myself to be the curé of the little village of or il signor Romoldo, the titled lover of Clarimonde. Be that as it may, I lived, at least I believed that I lived, in Venice. I have never been able to discover rightly how much of illusion and how much of reality there was in this fantastic adventure. We dwelt in a great palace on the Canaleo, filled with frescoes and statues, and containing two Titians in the noblest style of the great master, which were hung in Clarimonde's chamber. It was a palace well worthy of a king. We had each our gondola, our baccaroli and family livery, our music hall, and our special poet. Clarimonde always lived upon a magnificent scale. There was something of Cleopatra in her nature. As for me, I had the retinue of a prince's son, and I was regarded with as much reverential respect as though I had been of the family of one of the twelve apostles, or the four evangelists of the most serene republic. I would not have turned aside to allow even the doge to pass, and I do not believe that since Satan fell from heaven, any creature was ever prouder or more insolent than I. I went to the ridotto, and played with a luck which seemed absolutely infernal. I received the best of all society, the sons of ruined families, women of the theatre, shrewd knaves, parasites, hectoring swashbucklers. But notwithstanding the dissipation of such a life, I always remained faithful to Clarimonde. I loved her wildly. She would have excited satiety itself and chained inconstancy. To have Clarimonde was to have twenty mistresses, I to possess all women. So mobile, so varied of aspect, so fresh in new charms was she all in herself, a very chameleon of a woman, in sooth. She made you commit with her the infidelity you would have committed with another, by donning to perfection the character, the attraction, the style of beauty of the woman who appeared to please you. She returned my love a hundredfold, and it was in vain that the young patricians and even the ancients of the Council of Ten made her the most magnificent proposals. A Foscari even went so far as to offer to espouse her. She rejected all his overtures. Of gold she had enough. She wished no longer for anything but love. A love youthful, pure, evoked by herself, and which should be a first and last passion. I would have been perfectly happy, but for a cursed nightmare which recurred every night, and in which I believed myself to be a poor village curé, practising mortification and penance for my excesses during the day. Reassured by my constant association with her, 
I never thought further of the strange manner in which I had become acquainted with Clarimonde, but the words of the Abbe Serepillon concerning her recurred often to my memory, and never ceased to cause me uneasiness. For some time the health of Clarimonde had not been so good as usual. Her complexion grew paler day by day. The physicians who were summoned could not comprehend the nature of her malady, and knew not how to treat it. They all prescribed some insignificant remedies, and never called a second time. Her paleness nevertheless visibly increased, and she became colder and colder, until she seemed almost as white and dead as upon that memorable night in the unknown castle. I grieved with anguish unspeakable to behold her thus slowly perishing, and she, touched by my agony, smiled upon me sweetly and sadly, with the fateful smile of those who feel that they must die. One morning I was seated at her bedside and breakfasting from a little table placed close at hand, so that I might not be obliged to leave her for a single instant. In the act of cutting some fruit, I accidentally inflicted rather a deep gash on my finger. The blood immediately gushed forth in a little purple jet, and a few drops spurted upon Clarimonde. Her eyes flashed, her face suddenly assumed an expression of savage and ferocious joy, such as I had never before observed in her. She leapt out of her bed with animal agility, the agility, as it were, of an ape or a cat, and sprang upon my wound, which she commenced to suck with an air of unutterable pleasure. She swallowed the blood in little mouthfuls, slowly and carefully, like a connoisseur tasting a wine from Ceres or Syracuse. Gradually her eyelids half-closed, and the pupils of her green eyes became oblong instead of round. From time to time she paused in order to kiss my hand, then she would recommence to press her lips to the lips of the wound, in order to coax forth a few more ruddy drops. When she found that the blood would no longer come, she arose with eyes liquid and brilliant, rosier than a May dawn, her face full and fresh, her hand warm and moist, in fine, more beautiful than ever, and in the most perfect health. "'I shall not die! I shall not die!' she cried, clinging to my neck, half mad with joy. I can love thee yet for a long time. My life is thine, and all that is of me comes from thee. A few drops of thy rich and noble blood, more precious and more potent than all the elixirs of the earth, have given me back life. This scene long haunted my memory, and inspired me with strange doubts in regard to Clarimonde. And the same evening, when slumber had transported me to my presbytery, I beheld the Abbe Serapion, graver and more anxious of aspect than ever. He gazed attentively at me, and sorrowfully exclaimed, Not content with losing your soul, you now desire also to lose your body. Wretched young man, into how terrible a plight have you fallen! The tone in which he uttered these words powerfully affected me, but in spite of its vividness even that impression was soon dissipated, and a thousand other cares erased it from my mind. At last, one evening, while looking into a mirror, whose traitorous position she had not taken into account, I saw Clarimonde in the act of emptying a powder into the cup of spiced wine, which she had long been in the habit of preparing after our repasts. I took the cup, feigned to carry it to my lips, and then placed it on the nearest article of furniture, as though intending to finish it at my leisure. Taking advantage of a moment when the fair one's back was turned, I threw the contents under the table, 
after which I retired to my chamber and went to bed, fully resolved not to sleep, but to watch and discover what should come of all this mystery. I did not have to wait long. Clarimonde entered in her nightdress, and having removed her apparel, crept into bed and lay down beside me. When she felt assured that I was asleep, she bared my arm, and drawing a gold pin from her hair, commenced to murmur in a low voice, "'One drop, only one drop, one ruby at the end of my needle. Since thou lovest me yet I must not die. Ah, poor love! His beautiful blood, so brightly purple, I must drink it. Sleep, my only treasure, sleep, my God, my child. I will do thee no harm.' I will only take of thy life what I must to keep my own from being for ever extinguished. But that I love thee so much, I could well resolve to have other lovers whose veins I could drain. But since I have known thee, all other men have become hateful to me. Ah, oh, the beautiful arm! How round it is! How white it is! How shall I ever dare to prick this pretty blue vein? And while thus murmuring to herself she wept, and I felt her tears raining on my arm as she clasped it with her hands. At last she took the resolve, slightly punctured me with her pin, and commenced to suck up the blood which oozed from the place. Although she swallowed only a few drops, the fear of weakening me soon seized her, and she carefully tied a little band around my arm, afterward rubbing the wound with an ungent which immediately cicatrized it. Further doubts were impossible. The Abbe Serapion was right. Notwithstanding this positive knowledge, however, I could not cease to love Clarimonde, and I would gladly of my own accord have given her all the blood she required to sustain her factitious life. Moreover, I felt but little fear of her. The woman seemed to plead with me for the vampire, and what I had already heard and seen sufficed to reassure me completely. In those days I had plenteous veins, which would not have been so easily exhausted as at present and I would not have thought of bargaining for my blood drop by drop. I would rather have opened myself the veins of my arm and said to her, Drink, and may my love infiltrate itself throughout thy body together with my blood. I carefully avoided ever making the least reference to the narcotic drink she had prepared for me, or to the incident of the pin, and we lived in the most perfect harmony. Yet my priestly scruples commenced to torment me more than ever, and I was at a loss to imagine what new penance I could invent in order to mortify and subdue my flesh. Although these visions were involuntary, and though I did not actually participate in anything relating to them, I could not dare to touch the body of Christ with hands so impure and a mind defiled by such debauches, whether real or imaginary. In the effort to avoid falling under the influence of these wearisome hallucinations, I strove to prevent myself from being overcome by sleep. I held my eyelids open with my fingers, and stood for hours together, leaning upright against the wall, fighting sleep with all my might. But the dust of drowsiness invariably gathered upon my eyes at last, and finding all resistance useless, I would have to let my arms fall in the extremity of despairing weariness, and the current of slumber would again bear me away to the perfidious shores. Serapion addressed me with the most vehement exhortations, severely reproaching me for my softness and want of fervour. Finally, one day when I was more wretched than usual, he said to me, There is but one way by which you can obtain relief from this continual torment, 
and though it is an extreme measure, it must be made use of. Violent diseases require violent remedies. I know where Clagumond is buried. It is necessary that we shall disinter her remains, and that you shall behold in how pitiable a state the object of your love is. Then you will no longer be tempted to lose your soul for the sake of an unclean corpse devoured by worms and ready to crumble into dust. That will assuredly restore you to yourself. For my part, I was so tired of this double life that I at once consented, desiring to ascertain beyond a doubt whether a priest or a gentleman had been the victim of delusion. I had become fully resolved either to kill one of the two men within me for the benefit of the other, or else to kill both, for so terrible an existence could not last long and be endured. The Abbe Serapion provided himself with a mattock, a lever, and a lantern, and at midnight we wended our way to the cemetery of <coughs> the location and place of which were perfectly familiar to him. After having directed the rays of the dark lantern upon the inscriptions of several tombs, we came at last upon a great slab, half concealed by huge weeds, and devoured by mosses and parasitic plants, whereupon we deciphered the opening lines of the epitaph. Here lies Clarimonde, who was famed in her lifetime as the fairest of women. Ici qui Clarimonde, qui fut de son vivant la plus belle du monde. The broken beauty of the lines is unavoidably lost in the translation. It is here without a doubt, muttered Serapion, and placing his lantern on the ground, he forced the point of the lever under the edge of the stone and commenced to raise it. The stone yielded, and he proceeded to work with the mattock. Darker and more silent than the night itself, I stood by and watched him do it, while he, bending over his dismal toil, streamed with sweat, panted, and his hard-coming breath seemed to have the harsh tone of a death-rattle. It was a weird scene, and had any persons from without beheld us, they would assuredly have taken us rather for profane wretches and shroud-stealers than for priests of God. There was something grim and fierce in Serapion's zeal, which lent him the air of a demon rather than of an apostle or an angel, and his great aquiline face, with all its stern features, brought out in strong relief by the lantern-light, had something fearsome in it which enhanced the unpleasant fancy. I felt an icy sweat come out upon my forehead in huge beads, and my hair stood up with a hideous fear. Within the depths of my own heart I felt that the act of the austere Serapion was an abominable sacrilege, and I could have prayed that a triangle of fire would issue from the entrails of the dark clouds heavily rolling above us to reduce him to cinders. The owls which had been nestling in the cypress trees, startled by the gleam of the lantern, flew against it from time to time, striking their dusty wings against its panes, and uttering plaintive cries of lamentation. Wild foxes yelped in the far darkness, and a thousand sinister noises detached themselves from the silence. At last Serapion's mattock struck the coffin itself, making its planks re-echo with a deep, sonorous sound, with that terrible sound nothingness utters when stricken. He wrenched apart and tore up the lid, and I beheld Clarimonde, pallid as a figure of marble, with hands joined, her white winding sheet made but one fold from her head to her feet. A little crimson drop sparkled like a speck of dew at one corner of her colourless mouth. Serapion at this spectacle burst into fury. "'Ah, oh, thou art here, demon!' 
impure courtesan, drinker of blood and gold. And he flung holy water upon the corpse and the coffin, over which he traced the sign of the cross with his sprinkler. Poor Clarimonde had no sooner been touched by the blessed spray than her beautiful body crumbled into dust and became only a shapeless and frightful mass of cinders and half-calcined bones. "'Behold your mistress, my lord Romald!' cried the inexorable priest, as he pointed to these sad remains. "'Will you be easily tempted after this to promenade on the Lido or at Fusina with your beauty?' I covered my face with my hands. A vast ruin had taken place within me. I returned to my presbytery, and the noble lord Romald, the lover of Clarimonde, separated himself from the poor priest with whom he had kept such strange company so long. But once only the following night I saw Clarimonde. She said to me, as she had said the first time at the portals of the church, "'Unhappy man, unhappy man, what hast thou done? Wherefore have hearkened to that imbecile priest? Wert thou not happy?' And what harm had I ever done thee that thou shouldst violate my poor tomb and lay bare the miseries of my nothingness? All communication between our souls and our bodies is henceforth for ever broken. Adieu, thou wilt yet regret me. She vanished in air as smoke, and I never saw her more. Alas, she spoke truly indeed. I have regretted her more than once, and I regret her still. My soul's peace has been very dearly bought. The love of God was not too much to replace such a love as hers. And this, brother, is the story of my youth. Never gaze upon a woman, and walk abroad only with eyes ever fixed upon the ground. For however chaste and watchful one may be, the error of a single moment is enough to make one lose eternity. End of Part 2 of Clarimonde End of Clarimonde